to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heartsease Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. means to us, uh, how it impacts upon us, and how it can impact upon those around us. And in the first week of the series, Pastor told us about the fact that drift can happen. He spoke about if we take salvation for granted, before we know it, we can very soon be looking to try and keep one foot in the Christian camp, and one foot in the world and the life that we used to live before. In the second week, he spoke about what can happen to us if we neglect our salvation. It can lessen the impact that that has on us. And it can lessen the impact that it can have on other people. And then last week he spoke to us about the wonderful benefits of living a saved life. He told us about Psalm 21 and all the blessings that are listed in there. uh, And the fact that by living a a saved life, living life as a Christian, all of those blessings including God's protection, his, his, his blessings, and the fact that our prayers are going to be answered, they're all available to us. And today it is my absolute honor... Uh, and I'm super excited to be here to basically um, wrap up the Salvation Unplugged series and to talk to you today about one of God's many, many promises that he has for us. The promise of how our life will be if we decide to actually uh, add things to our salvation experience. And the title of this message today is Salvation Plus. And it's not because we can make ourselves more saved, because we can't, than when we actually initially give our lives to Christ. But because when we make the right choices there are even more benefits to salvation than just salvation itself. So before we dig into God's word, find out a bit more, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day that you've given to us, Lord. I just thank you for this church. I thank you for every person here, Lord. I just pray that you would give me the words to speak, that we can just touch hearts, Lord, that we can change lives, and that people will leave here different from when they arrived. We just thank you so much for all you do and provide, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Okay, so this, is, as I said, is called Salvation Plus. And it's, um, we've discovered already that salvation itself is not actually an event. It's not just a one-off moment. Salvation is actually an experience. The moment that we accept Christ as our Lord and our Saviour, that's an ending, and then it's a beginning. It's the ending of our old life, and it's the beginning of our new life. And it's very much like at the point of salvation, it's like a doorway. It's like we're stepping into the doorway and through. And if we're actually stepping into a building, we just leave an outside behind. We don't just step in the door and stand on the threshold. We keep moving forward. And our Christian life should be the very same thing. The doorway of salvation, we should step through and keep moving forward, not just stand and wait on the threshold. So we're going to look in today at what God promises, if that's what we decide to do. It's an exciting promise of fruitfulness in our lives and growth in our relationship with God. And choosing to live a salvation plus life does not make us more saved, as I've already said. Once you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Saviour, once you've acknowledged that he lived, he died on the cross, and he rose again, then you're saved. And you can't be any more saved or less saved after that moment. In fact, Romans 10.9 tells us, 
If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So nothing you do after that will make you more saved. But it will determine how blessed your life on earth is, and it will determine, as importantly, how much you will impact on other people. So the scripture we're going to be looking at today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. So please, if you've got your Bibles with you, open them up, fire up your eye whatevers, or look up at the screen here. So 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So Peter's writing this letter to Christians who are in Asia Minor, and he's telling us in simple terms that being granted salvation is a precious thing, that because of salvation we've been given all of the things that we need to lead a life which is godly, and that at the point of salvation we're given great and precious promises. So it's very clear here that the salvation in and of itself is an amazing gift from God. But over and above that, at the time that we're saved, we've become equipped with all that we need to step away from the old world that we lived in and into the new world as being saved. And that we're given promises from God that will improve our life even further than that. Now, the next few verses, this shows us something that we see in other parts of the Bible as well, and that is this. God's love for us is completely unconditional. His promises are not. Let me say that one more time for you. God's love for us is unconditional. His promises are not. So wait, what does that mean? Does it mean that God requires something from us in order that we're blessed? No, it doesn't mean that at all. The moment we're saved, we're granted eternal life. And I'm sure you'd agree that that's a blessing in itself, agreed? Does it mean that we have to do good works in order to be saved or remain saved? The answer to that is no also. It doesn't mean that. In the book of Ephesians, we're told by Paul, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. So what does it mean? Well, it means this. Some of God's blessings that he promises can only become real in our lives and present in our lives if we put forth some effort and we strive to make the right choices. The biggest and the most important decision we make ever is to give our lives to Christ. The choices that we make after that will display whether or not we've surrendered fully to him. Okay, so let's see the promise from God that Peter talks about in his letter. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 10. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. So this list of traits and attitudes can appear to be very demanding. And at the point that, the point that Peter is trying to make here is not that you have to be perfect in order to receive God's blessings. God doesn't expect perfection from us. If you look at verse 8 again, 
it says, for if these things are yours and abound. Now, the definition for the word abound is this. It's, number one, to occur or exist in great quantities or numbers. Number two, to be rich or well supplied. So it's to occur or exist in great quantities or numbers or to be rich or well supplied. Now, the New Living Translation puts this in this verse as supplement your faith with a generous provision of these traits. A generous provision. In other words, these things need to be present in you and your life and present in good quantities. Not to the point of perfection. Who's going to give me a thank you, Lord? Okay. So God's promise to us here is that we, if we can apply these seven principles or traits to our lives, we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in our knowledge of Christ. And the NLT says that with, the, with these things, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more productive and useful you will be. And the Message Bible tells us, with these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet and no day will pass without its reward. What a wonderful promise is that. No day will pass without its reward. And let's not forget that we're told in verse 10, if we do these things, we will never stumble. So as with every aspect of our lives, God loves us enough to grant us free will, freedom of choice. And this means that we are free to choose not to apply these things in our life. Now, if we do that, Peter tells us that uh, with that choice, we're short-sighted to the point of blindness and that we've forgotten that we were cleansed of our sins. And that would be stepping through that door that I spoke about of salvation and standing still, maybe even looking back and reaching out for the world that we left behind. So let's take a few moments to look at these seven things that we need to add to the faith that we're given to at the point of being saved. So when we're saved, we're automatically given faith. What Peter is talking about here is the seven things that we can add to that and make it into a salvation plus experience, if you like. So the first thing is virtue. The Greek word for virtue is arete, and that was used to describe intrinsic value, moral excellency and goodness. So we are to have an abundance of moral excellency and goodness in our lives, in our hearts and in our minds. So as with all of these traits that we're going to be looking at, if we have them abound inside of us, in other words, if we have a generous provision of them, it's safe to say that they will show on the outside of us uh, in our choices, in our actions and the way that we react to other people, and to situations. Agreed? So to show virtue on the outside, we need to have virtue on the inside. And having virtue means to be good, not just in action, but in thought. Now, garbage in, garbage out is a phrase that Pastor Phil uses sometimes, and it's not just computer speak. What it basically means is what we put into us is what will tend to come out. So as a practical point, in order for us to be virtuous... We must think in a virtuous way, and in order for us to do that, we have to be very careful what we allow to go into our minds. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And by doing this, we can work on adding virtue into our lives. Now, we all know that we're bombarded by the media, by television, by films, and, and by things that wouldn't best be described by what Paul's talking about there, agreed? Society today tells us that it's normal and it's okay to watch things that used to be looked upon as inappropriate. They say, we're told that it's old-fashioned to worry about our, us or our kids hearing curse words or seeing sexual content on television. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't care about being called old-fashioned. Old I want to be God-fashioned. I want to be shaped by him. I want to be molded by him. 
I want to be shaped by him into his image, and I don't want to become the image that society is telling me I should be. Amen? All right, next we need to add knowledge. The use of the word knowledge in this verse is not just about knowing stuff at a mental level. What it talks about here is it's the meaning of an experience of God and of Christ that results in moral transformation. It means knowing God in such a way that it changes the way that we want to act. It changes the way that we want to to be, and it changes us into desiring that we live a godly life. We don't do it just because we're supposed to, because we're a Christian. I believe that God wants to see in us an obedience that's fueled by desire. So how do we come to know God in that way? Well, we read the Word, we pray, we attend church, we listen to lessons and messages that we hear, and we apply those things to our life. To know and not to do is not to know. It's a phrase that's coined a lot. What that means is we can learn, and we can be taught, and we can soak it up. But if we then don't apply the things that we learn, effectively we don't really and truly know it. If we knew to live a godly life, we would live a godly life. If we don't know it, we don't do it. So we just need to, as I said, apply the things that we learn. Now, I was at the art conference in Florida the week before last, and we had the opportunity, and we were blessed to, to hear from a lot of really well-known and renowned speakers. And one of those was Pastor Larry Stockstill. You probably know him from Bethany Church. Uh, and he's an awesome man of God. And he was talking to us about knowledge. He was talking to us about uh, knowledge of the Word, knowledge of the Bible. And he told us there that we need to have so much knowledge of God that it's not just, it becomes not about us, not about what we're learning for us, but that we know God so much and we have so much knowledge of the word that we literally overflow with it. Because if we overflow with it, we're then touching other people and we're pouring into other people without even trying. Now he sat on this stage in front of two and a half thousand people, two and a half thousand pastors and pastors associates and assistants and other church staff members and things of that nature, two, two and a half thousand of them. And he said, I'm going to throw it out open to you. I want you to shout out a book and a chapter from the New Testament. And five times on the trot, somebody shouted out a book and a chapter from the New Testament. And Pastor Larry not only told them what that book spoke about, what the, what the theme was that was running through that book, but he quoted a verse from that chapter. So every book and chapter in the New Testament. Now, he didn't do that to say, look what I know. He was doing it to, to say, Look how much I know and how much I can help other people. Nobody can go to him with any question about the New Testament or the Bible in general without him not being able to apply it into their lives. So I'm not suggesting that we need to get that way, but how much closer would we be to God if we knew his word that well? How much more equipped and confident would we be to feel and to share the gospel with other people? What if that last person that we didn't speak to about Christ when we, were, we felt led to do so was the next Larry Stockstill? or would have been the next Philip Pimlot. Your calling may not be to preach a life-changing message to hundreds or thousands of people, but your calling in life may well be to speak to that person that will then become that person to do that very thing. So the more knowledge that we have of God, the less we will be afraid of speaking to people about him. People need what we have. There are over 200 million people in the United States of America. Forget the rest of the world, just the United States of America, over 200 100 million people do not know Christ. They need what we've got. Now, another pastor at the conference, uh, John Gray, he told us that some of the most passionate worshippers and followers of Christ are those that have been saved from a life that they remember being saved from. Those that had such a life-changing transformation that they're always excited, not just about what God can do, 
but what God has actually done in their lives. It's a memory. It's not a thought and a concept. They can remember what it is that God saved them from. And they remember the way that they were living before, they, and they remember the darkness that they were living in. Now, as I said already, over 200 million Americans out there could be that next passionate worshipper. We need to know God well enough that we're not afraid to speak about him to that one person. That person that you feel led to speak to, and, have cho- and then you choose whether to be obedient or not, and actually speak to them about the Lord. And remember, that one, that person, that, they might not look like they need to be spoken to. They might not look that, like they need God. They might look like they have it all together. They might look like they're not broken. They might look that they're not sad and they're not lonely, that they're not clinically depressed. They're not a semi-professional gambler. They're not drinking alcohol every single day. They're not using pornography regularly. They may not look like they're wondering what life's all about, whether they missed the boat, whether they missed the point, or that they're resigned to spending the rest of their life alone. They may look on the outside, they have no need to be spoken to about Jesus Christ, and they have no need for a relationship with him that could transform their life. And that one, that was me five years ago. I thank God every day for Molly and that he used her. I thank God that she was obedient. And I thank God that Molly knew God well enough that I could see that she had something from 5,000 miles away and knew that I needed what she had. Now, if you've been saved all your life, then you've been blessed to know him that long. But maybe you know what it is to be saved, but you don't know what it is that you've been saved from. Maybe you can't relate to having been in bondage and being set free from it by the grace of God. Maybe your relationship over the years has become less close than it was, or maybe it wasn't that close in the first place. Maybe you've never known him that well, and to this day you wonder what all the fuss is about. Each and every one of us needs to know him more. We need to get closer to him, and we need to become more equipped to touch other people. Amen? So after knowledge, what do we need? Self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit which Paul talks about in Galatians. And in fact, Paul speaks about self-control in the majority of the letters that he writes. So if Paul's writing about it a lot, it's pretty safe to say that God wants us to know about it, okay? And so the Greek word used in Galatians is actually engratia, which means to have command or mastery over or possession of one's own behavior. So being in control of your own behavior. And self-control is important in every aspect of our lives. But it's one of the hardest things for us to maintain consistently. Agreed? We need to have self-control in regards to our desires and our temptations, self-control in our emotions such as worry or anger, self-control in the way that we carry ourselves and and react to one another, and we need self-control in all the things that uh, will make sure that we don't carry anything to excess. And let me just remind everybody, it's not about perfection. None of us are perfect. We all have issues. We were born into a sin nature, and part of that sin nature is our lack of self-control. So it's something that each and every single person in this place has some area that they need to work on with this. And we all have our own challenges with self-control, and we really need to look at what part of our lives we we lack self-control in. And if you're not sure what those areas are, because I assure you you have them, if you're not sure what they are, then just speak to the, the people that live with you the people that are closest to you, the people that you're around the most, because they will be able to see a mile away what your shortcomings are as regards self-control. So, for example, if you've got a short temper, you might not realise it and understand it, but I can tell you, your wife, your husband or your kids, they'll be able to point it out to you without any problem at all. Here's one for you. How do you drive? How do you react to other people? Do you jump red lights? 
Do you jump stop signs? Do you just slow down instead of actually stopping? And as importantly, what do you do when somebody you know, cuts you off? Do you curse them out? Do you get frustrated? Do you get angry? Do you wave at them in that, that, that particular way out of the window? What is it that you actually do? Now, I'm not saying any of this to judge, but one thing I will say to you is, if you either are one of those that jumps a red light, or you're one of those people that cuts people off, or you're one of those people that curses them out, if it happens to you, do all of your brothers and sisters in Christ a favour and take the fish off the back of your car. Thank you. Okay, so moving on. Next of the seven. I've got an amen from the back. Okay, so next of the seven, perseverance. The dictionary defines perseverance as steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose, a state, etc., especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. So despite those things, we have to have steady persistence in order to, be, to, be, uh, to have perseverance. Now, salvation does not mean suddenly that life is going to be perfect. It does not mean that you will have a trouble-free life. God does not promise either of these things. He doesn't tell us life's going to be perfect. He doesn't tell us life is going to be trouble-free. What he does promise us is that he will be with us along through those journeys and through those challenges that we face. The fact is this. Some of the greatest moments in your life will come on the back of some of the worst moments of your life as long as you persevere. Let me say that again. Some of the greatest moments in your life will come on the back of some of the worst moments of your life as long as you persevere. We need to be consistent and persistent and persevere in our faith and in the belief that God will turn everything around for good, as he promises. And it's in these moments that we're facing the hardest trials that we have to decide to turn toward God and not to turn away from him. I know in my life, some of the hardest challenges I've ever had to face have come since the moment I was saved. In November 2010, I was involved in the accident that many of you have heard about outside of Healing Place Church when a good friend of mine, Jordan Gotro, was killed. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of the accident or dwell on the aftermath, but obviously, it was devastating to a lot of people, his family, his friends, and every person at Healing Place Church, because he was an intern there, and known and loved by most people. The point is this, that literally at the point of the accident, I was in the car that... that um, for want of a better phrase, caused the accident. So at the point of that accident, I got out and I hit my knees and I prayed and I gave it to God. And following, the months following the accident, I, I gave it to God completely. I leaned on him completely. Now, I was obviously very upset, but I chose not to allow the circumstances to crush me or my spirit. I stood fast in the knowledge that the accident was in God's plan. I stood fast in the knowledge that God has chosen, had chosen me to actually be involved in the accident. And I stood fast in the knowledge that God was good. Sorry, good was going to come from it. And God, good, did come from it. As a direct result of Jordan's death, literally hundreds of people gave their lives to Christ. The accident gave me an unshakable faith and belief in God and a clear knowledge that he really and truly does have a plan for everybody. And after the accident, there was a chain of events that led me here to Heartsease in a way that only God could have planned. Now, am I saying that God planned the accident just to shape and steer me in my life? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that I didn't waste time or spiritual energy asking God why or why me. I just buried myself in him and his word and persevered through the whole situation. And God was faithful to me in return. Now, as, as most of you know, Molly and I are expecting a baby boy at the end of July. But what you may not know is that this is our third pregnancy in two years. We had two miscarriages prior to this healthy pregnancy that we believe is going to go full term. And a devastating and heartbreaking experience again. And we obviously were upset. 
but neither Molly or I wavered for one moment from the knowledge and security that this was all part of God's plan. And our relationship with him again grew stronger through that time. Now, I'm not saying to you any of this to say that I've got it all together as regards my faith, because I really don't. But what I am saying is this. It's in times when tragedy happens, I believe that we have a choice to make straight away. We either give it all to God and lean harder on him in the knowledge that he is the only one that can help us, or we turn away from God and try and find something else to make us feel better. We either persevere in our faith that God is in control and will turn all things to good, or we give up on him and get bitter and twisted that something bad happened to us in the first place. In our most difficult times, the truth is this. We will prove to the world, to ourselves, and to God that we truly believe in him or that we don't. Now, God wants us to become closer to him. He wants us to surrender to him. God wants us to be the answer to all of our questions when all we have is questions. He wants us to lean on him when we're in grief or in sorrow or in depression. God wants us to persevere in our faith. Now, the enemy will use our times of greatest challenge to attack us and attack our faith, to try and convince us that God's promises are untrue, that God is a liar, that God has let us down, or that God has turned his back on us. But it's the tests that we go through in life that turned into our testimonies. Testimonies that no one can argue with or dispute. Testimonies that we can hold fast to as new challenges arise. That we can tell the enemy, no, my God is good. My God is a healer. My God stands by his promises. He is my deliverer. He is my healer. He is my rock. And Satan, it's you that's the liar. So after perseverance, godliness... Godliness does not mean to be like God. Godliness does not mean to be like God. It means to have great reverence for God or great respect for him. It means acting in ways that display that respect and reverence for him. One definition says that godliness is conforming to the wishes of God. Now remember that verse 3 of our main scripture for today says that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we already have the things inside of us through the Holy Spirit to live a godly life, a life which is pleasing to God. The only thing standing between us and living in a godly fashion is ourselves, our own flesh and our own desires, and the amount of self-control that we either have or that we don't have in certain areas. God created us to be in his image. God gave us the abilities and traits that we need to live in a way that pleases him when we were first saved. But again, he also gave us free will to decide whether or not we would develop these things in our life. Godliness requires us to adopt a less of me and more of you attitude. We have to die to self, reduce the ways that our flesh dictates our decisions, and increase the amount that we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. So next, brotherly kindness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Philadelphia is the Greek word for brotherly kindness. And it's formed from two words, philio, meaning love, and adelphus, which means brother. And Philadelphia literally means the love of brothers. Now, when we're saved, we become part of the body of Christ, part of the Christian family. And Philadelphia in the New Testament, it describes the love that one Christian cherishes for another Christian. And it's this love that should make other Christians feel that they're part of a family. In Romans 12.10, Paul talks about this. Uh, It talks about brotherly kindness, and he says, Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honouring each other. So we're given clear advice on how to treat each other as Christians, how our brotherly kindness will look if we actually have it abound in us. It means looking out for each other in our daily walk, 
It means being kind to each other in church. It means being patient with each other. It means not judging other people for decisions that they've made or that they're making right now. It means treating everyone as part of a family, part of our family. And how different would the world look if everybody treated each other that way? And how different would our church look if we all treated everybody that way? So last but by no means least, love. Many people know 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. And it's in this chapter in verses 4 through 7 that Paul actually describes to us exactly what love is and what it looks like. And he says this, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Then in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. So love is the last thing that we need to add to our faith. And it's something that we're called to by God many, many times in the word. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is love. So as Christians, love should be the very first thing that people see in us. Again, love will show itself in our way and in our lives by the way that we treat other people. And he says quite clearly, we should love our neighbours as ourselves. And that verse doesn't qualify which neighbours we should love. It doesn't say, love your neighbours as yourself as long as they are lovable, are Christians, are the same sex as you, same colour as you, same age as you, same sexual orientation as you, have the same beliefs or views as you, like the same things as you, support the same football team as you, shower as often as you do, wear the same clothes you do, live in the same kind of house or live in the same neighbourhood. There is no distinction. Just love your neighbour. One of the wonderful and amazing examples that Jesus gave to us. One of the wonderful and amazing examples that Jesus gave to us was the way that he loved people. He loved everyone completely unconditionally. And he loved those that no one else would love. He truly loved the unlovable and he loved people when they were at their lowest or at their worst. He loved people before they were saved. And he loved people before they had grown and changed and improved. And God wants us to do the very same thing. So let's take the far, one final look at verse 10 of 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. This verse gives us an incredible promise that if we apply these things in our life with diligence, if we add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love, we will never stumble. We won't ever be perfect. But by diligently adding these things into our lives, we will not only receive God's promise that we will be fruitful and not barren, but also that he will never let us stumble. How awesome is that? So we've covered a lot of ground today and looked at a lot of scripture, but what I want you to leave with today is this. The moment of being saved is the end of your old life, but it's just the beginning of your new life. Salvation is a comma, it's not a period. Salvation is a journey from where you are when you are saved to where it is that God wants you to be. And salvation should be an ongoing and an on-growing experience for every one of us. Amen? Amen. Please stand. We would 
like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's Word into effect. At HeartSeas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.